Yesterday, although it was a feast day of Satan, you preferred to keep a spiritual feast, receiving our words with great goodwill, and spending most of the day here in church, drinking a drunkenness of self-control, and dancing in the chorus of Paul. In this way, a double benefit came to you, because you kept free of the disorderly dance of the drunkards, and you reveled in well-ordered spiritual dances. You shared a drinking bowl which did not pour out undiluted wine, but was filled with spiritual instruction. You became a flute and a lyre for the Holy Spirit. While others danced for the devil, you prepared yourselves by your occupation here to be spiritual instruments and vessels. You allowed the Holy Spirit to play on your souls and to breathe his grace into your hearts. Thus you sounded a harmonious melody to delight not only mankind, but even the powers of heaven. Welcome everyone, you are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Willie Grills here with Adam Coons to talk St. John Chrysostom and his sermons on The Rich Man and Lazarus. Adam, how's it going? It's going very well, how are you? I'm doing well. How is the weather in Fort Wayne? <laughs> uh, it's snowy. It's it's nice. Uh, if the sky's going to be gray for the next 1,000 months, I would rather that it snow than not. So it's nice. Yeah, a little bit of snow here. Mostly ice this week, but warming back up again. A little bit strange. Who knows what that means? But it, <laughs> it is what it is. So we don't have Zelwyn here with us, so we uh, we can't get the report from the tundra. We don't have David here with us, so we can't get the uh, green conditions on at the Country Club lawn. So I'm really not sure, you know, how to weather post, and it's just the two of us since we're on the same almanac line, I guess you could we're say. On, well, we're on the same, whatever the programming that has been recently put out by the United States Air Force is, we're in the same zone for that programming. So Correct. The, the yeah. Kim Trail runs roughly from central Illinois up through north central Indiana. A lot of people right. don't realize this. Yeah, right. Yeah. Few, few know this, but very true. So Right. You know why they don't know? Because they don't get outside and, and look up at the sky. And uh, amazing thing. We tell you to get sunshine, not only not only to absorb the rays and to improve your health, but also to increase your awareness. Yeah, just keep and an eye so, on things, folks. Keep an eye yeah, on things. Keep one eye open, and uh, you'll you'll be much you'll be much better off. <laughs> well, hopefully, Zelwyn uh, will get back with us. He has a case of buffalo fever right now, so he is he is laid up. He is laid up. Uh, I have sent him up a tincture and some tonics. Hopefully, we can bring him back. Yeah, some oregano oil, some glycine, and uh, some powdered mushrooms so that he can uh, recover very swiftly. And and Zelwyn, if you're listening to this, please, as I told you, go sit under a white birch tree so that you can be, um, you know, completely renovated in time for the next recording. Yeah, our our, our prayers are with you. <laughs> so he'll be fine, folks. He'll be back. I'm struggling a little bit through this. I've got a cough right now. And it's like we're visiting shut-ins here all of a sudden. Um, this is great. Just but, tell me uh, again in 10 minutes that you have a cough. Yeah. Right. Okay. So uh, what happened was it's not the coof. Everybody calm down. But uh, we are putting new flooring in uh, at the church, and the, and the floor people are here. They're doing an excellent job, really coming in ahead of schedule so far. But we're putting tile in the chancel. They're cutting up tile. They're taking out old tile in the back. And uh, I walked in and wanted to check out, maybe supervise a little, see what they're doing. And I didn't use a, a mask or a respirator, so uh, the coof didn't. The, yeah. 
The coof didn't get me, but apparently mesothelioma <laughs> is going to. So <laughs> old-fashioned American asbestos is going to get right. You. Yeah. you know what? Good enough for Steve McQueen. Good enough for me. That's Aww. what I always say. Too soon. Taking too soon. Hey, bullet was a great one. That Mustang had six hubcaps. <laughs> anyway, moving on. Now that we've offended and alienated everyone we possibly can uh, before this, we're going to talk about Chrysostom's sermons on wealth and poverty, yeah. specifically rich man and Lazarus. So right. why are we taking this up, Adam? Uh, we're doing it because it's a really interesting example. We have hundreds of sermons from John Chrysostom. And the last time we did this series, we were talking about marriage and family life. Now we're talking about a different realm of life, and he also uses a different method in this series of seven sermons because they're all on the same Bible parable. So you get a really good chance to contrast preaching on a totally different topic in a different way by the same preacher. So I, I think it'll be pretty helpful to everybody. Right. You know, and so we're using um, a book, you know, it is called St. John Chrysostom on Wealth and Poverty from St. Vlad's. And, okay, so the, these are preached over a year, give or take. Yeah, right. And it's over the same text. Now, when you sit down and read it, uh, you know, in an afternoon or something like that, it might strike you as somewhat repetitive. But keep in mind, these are spaced out much more as they're actually preached. Right. And that's fairly important to remember. The first important lesson, the most important lesson we have to learn is from a from one single text, you can mine a lot of solid content. Right, because he doesn't take everything all at once and cram all the teaching possible on the parable into, you know, 12 minutes or something the way some of us might do. He takes things part by part by part. So there's there's repetition, I think, especially in his applications and even exasperation as he repeats himself towards the end. But he he is hitting different emphases because he'll take different sets of words or a different set of facts from the parable in a given sermon. So he's not doing it all at once. Absolutely. Um, his speech is rather pointed and it's rather direct uh, Very, for one simple yeah. reason. Uh, he, he chooses the right pronoun. <laughs> right <laughs> So, uh, yeah, I looked long and hard to find a paragraph that would sound comfortable and familiar where Chrysostom would say something like, and you and me visit courtesans and fritter our lives away, spending our money on prostitutes and drinking, and you and me are all saved by Jesus. He, he never says that. It's all second person. You do this. You do that. You should be mourning over your sins. It's all second person discourse. And it's a very powerful uh, trick. I don't mean trick in a bad way, but it's a very powerful rhetorical yeah. device, we'll yeah. say. Because going to third person, you know, the we, is, it's, it softens the point, no matter what it does. Right. It, 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 it robs the law preaching, if we want to use that term, sure. of its power. Mm -hmm. And it, it even robs the gospel preaching, if you will, of its specificity right right it's like okay now we're all you know now we're all just sharing a big bowl of something and um <laughs> so so it's kind of in it, a sloppy untoward way yeah right 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 yeah. yeah it robs it of uh of its direct comfort and yet we're kind of taught implicitly that that's the more polite way to do it because it is more comfortable and so you end up a lot of times in certain circles where sermons exclusively use we or, or, or use and me's. 
And uh, or you can also go the narcissistic way and use first person as much as you want. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Right. And make it, make it as much about you, maybe build a blog around it, I don't know. Yeah. Some people do that. Yeah, a person uh, some could. Yeah. Person could if he wanted in yeah. in the current year. And he wouldn't um, be preaching necessarily. So No, it would not count as preaching. You can right. you can literally teach to whoever you want, but it does not count as preaching or teaching publicly. <laughs> That's right. Um, yeah, I well I was thinking about this when I was reading going back over these sermons and I thought because I, I thought of exactly the thing that you're mentioning, and I thought, hey, is this actually, you know, is there something wrong with this? Because there are times when Chrysostom is very, I mean, he's cutting, he's cutting in his yeah. denunciations. Yeah. And I, th- but I thought, <laughs> you know, this has a much better biblical base, basis, especially in the prophets, than speaking in the first person plural or the singular, especially yeah. about sin, you know? It, sure. It, yeah, I mean, Jeremiah is not called to denounce his own sins, even though he's aware of his insufficiencies as he express, you know, I'm too young, etc. But in his preaching, he's not denouncing his own sin. He's denouncing Israel's sin to Israel. And so the second person is used. Right. I mean, you have that in, I mean, I mean all the major prophets. Mm-hmm. Um, Ezekiel, you have it in the great sermon in Acts right. 2, Acts chapter 2. This Jesus whom you crucified, for right. example. Right. So, yeah, it's... Now, that's not to say there aren't certain times where third person is appropriate or something like that. It's just to say that we shouldn't shy away. If we really want to follow the biblical model, you're going to see the second person used a lot more. Right. Um, but right. culturally, and I don't know when we became so sensitive to these yeah, things. Yeah, right. That's no excuse, though. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. I mean, uh, uh, we're not, uh, we're not supposed to govern our congregations by our, by our culture or by our comfort. So, you know, it's right. kind of simple in that regard. Yeah. All the, I mean, well, that's how you also end up with all these hyphenated masses anyway. And, you know, <laughs> X group mass, you know, B group mass, these sorts mm-hmm. of things, uh, because we think we have to tailor everything. That's again, I think that's part of, you know, it's not that we don't want worship to be accessible. We do. But preaching is not always comfortable. And honestly, depending upon how you're living and where you are, even sitting through the liturgy might not be the most comfortable thing for right. you. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You're, I, and, and, and it's not designed to be, right? And the right. preaching should be accessible. It should be understood of men, let's say. But it doesn't have to be comfortable. Right. Now, on the flip side of that, that, that doesn't mean that we're just deliberately getting up there and being provocative right. Sunday after Sunday. Right. It's just right. that when the text demands it or the particular situation demands it, then you don't shrink back. You be a man. Men are preachers. Be one. And so, you know, don't be afraid to boldly preach where you need to be. Uh, but it takes a little bit of discernment, I suppose, too. It does. And when Chrysostom does it in this series of sermons, especially about people attending chariot races, which are tumultuous and insane, and he sees them as totally frivolous, that's the occasion for his sternest denunciations. They're not sort of random. And the intro that you heard, you know, roughly 10 minutes or so ago, is taken from the very first sermon where he's contrasting that the Christians were in church to celebrate the new year while the rest of the world was devoting itself to being drunk. But, but you, the Christians were drunk with the drunkenness of self-control. So 
There are based. also tons. Yeah, yeah, right. Exactly. He's, he's. I mean, I. He. He is. He is stern, but when you disappoint someone who's stern, the person who's stern also gets the opportunity to make you feel really good when <laughs> right. he compliments you. You know, he he has a different. The, the entire self presentation is very fatherly rather than friendly. Yeah, and exactly. that's probably the biggest difference between a lot of the preaching we hear or maybe do and the way Chrysostom sounds. And it's part of why his sermons have survived a millennia where others will not. <laughs> yeah, I've, you're, only time will tell, but I suspect you're right. <laughs> right. Not, <laughs> not naming names. Right. So his, as in typical Chrysostom fashion, uh, he's very vivid right. in in his language. He he doesn't shrink from appealing to emotion. And sometimes Not we're taught that that's a, that that's a bad thing, but yeah. I don't think it is. I think rhetorically it's very powerful. Right. And you know what it is, you know, the Holy spirit does affect your emotions when he convicts you <laughs> and when he comforts you as well. Right. And especially in the earlier sermons, the the way that he's going to do his exposition laying out what does this what does this text actually mean in the bible and then also how how is it applied to us he takes it image by image so he takes you on a tour of the life of the rich man and then he takes you on a tour of the sufferings of lazarus right and so you you don't get to lazarus for a while but you have an extremely vivid sense uh, in your mind, which he has painted with his words, of what it looks like to be the rich man and to have everything in an image that he brings up several times flowing to you like a spring. No cares, no worries, everything taken care of, more than enough all the time. Right. And, and, and that, I think, I think painting images in people's minds allows you to convey far more emotion because the words come to them as if they are part of life rather than you're having to gin up the emotion somehow by your sternness or your niceness or, you know, it, or you're, or you're inventing some uh, fable somewhere of your own right. devices. Yeah. Right. Right. Or some winsome news story. Right. Well, yeah. well with that yeah. said, if one of the things is, what makes for a powerful illustration or a powerful way to use emotion would be from real life. Let's talk a little bit about the audience and, and why this particular parable strikes them so hard. Well, one of the ways, and, and, and you brought this up as we were getting ready for tonight's recording, one of the ways that you can tell are the habits that Chrysostom presumes the audience in fourth century, late 4th century Antioch is going to be engaged in, among which is reading scripture, which presumes a certain education level and an income income that can afford. Yeah, right. That can afford a Bible or some part of a Bible or whatever. And so he is most likely addressing himself to people who have leisure and time to either attend sporting events and get drunk or read the Bible. (laughs) Which means that as he preaches this, he is talking to virtually everyone who could hear this podcast. Right. right. <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah, totally. Right. Right. Because on an absolute scale, we're all we're all wealthy by ancient standards. So. Right. Yeah, we're doing a little bit better uh, 
than uh, than even uh, kings in those days. Right. If we want to be honest, I mean, uh, many of us, many right. of us are. Um, it is relative. You know, I don't. I'm not one of those guys that's always like. Anytime someone says, "Oh man, my phone died" or "My car blew up," and somebody's like, "Yeah, first world problems." <laughs> like, well, I, I live in the first world. I have to have some things to live in it. I can't. Right. I'm sorry. Not... I have a reliable water supply. You know. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Exactly. I'm sorry that um, that I can eat meat medium rare and it won't kill me. I can't. I can't. I don't know what to what to tell you. I'm right. So... Right. I'm sorry. <laughs> right. But anyway, uh, yeah. So uh, we can certainly fall into this because ultimately it is it is a sermon against greed. Is an exhortation toward almsgiving, and it is an exhortation toward making the best use of our time. Yeah, right. And it's it's interesting where the applications don't go, because when he's talking about Lazarus, for instance, when he's saying that, and we'll talk about this probably later on, you know, Lazarus is this extreme example of suffering that helps you if you also have are suffering. You understand that not only has someone else gone through this, but he's gone through worse than you have, so you can endure what you're going through. Chrysostom doesn't focus on poverty. He talks about chronic illness. Mm -hmm. And when he's commending Abraham, he doesn't talk about, oh, yeah, well, actually, it's okay to be rich like Abraham. He just talks about Abraham going through a lot of bad things, which is different from the rich man in Luke, who has uninterrupted pleasure and feasting. So even where he could mention extreme poverty to make people feel better or say, Hey, it's okay to have some money. You know, Abraham had lots of stuff. He doesn't. Right. So you can tell that he's got a certain demographic that he's really trying to hammer home. Your life is kind of on a basic level, a problem, and it's a great temptation for you. Right. And we'll get into some of the specifics on how, on how he deals with this. And it is again, rather, rather pointed. I mean, when he says things like, you know, if to remember this, that if you do not share, if we do not share our own wealth with the poor, mm-hmm. it is theft from the poor and deprivation of their means of life. Uh, we do not mm-hmm. possess our own wealth, but yeah. our own wealth, our own wealth, but theirs. Well, there's right. a third person use, right? Right. But to, to call the poor's wealth, to call our wealth that of the poor, right, is, is something that that is very striking um, and that wouldn't really fly in a lot of circumstances today. <laughs> and it is worth discussing, you know, how can you how can you say this because typically how do we couch it? Well, what you have is from God. Right. It belongs to God and he says well it belongs to the poor and he's still kind of saying the same thing, but but his idea is that God has, you know, you have this and it's assumed that you'll do your duty with it and that is to give it to them. And in that right. sense it's theirs. But again, he doesn't he doesn't use the the modern terms and the modern phraseology that we would. And that's what makes it uh, once again, probably better. I think uh, at least more stirring in a way or jarring depending on. Yeah. Right. I, I would say that when he's making an application, he's generally making that application such that if you only had that sermon on the subject, you would say, I think he's overemphasizing. I think he's pushing exactly. too hard. You know yeah, what I mean? Exactly. But if he's doing another sermon on the same text, he's going to make a different application and only push on that. And so <laughs> right. it provides both variety, but also a certain like clarity that if he was, if he were more careful, you wouldn't have. Yeah. And this, exactly. And this is also going to reinforce this point about the need to come to church 
and to listen to what he's saying. <laughs> yeah, right. Because right. you're going to miss it. Right. You know, you're going to right. get this skewed view. Right. And and that's kind of true. If you if you walk into to a church once, hear a sermon that you don't like, you just assume the guy's a heretic and run away. Right. Right. Or you, you assume he's a quote unquote bad preacher and run away. When um, the art of preaching is better measured uh, in years than just in one sermon here or there. And so that's why a lot of the people that we focus on in the Preaching Christ series, there are a lot of sermons extant from them. So there are huge bodies that you can go to and draw on and get kind of a good a good idea of what they're doing and how they exercise the craft. Right. Right. But we're at our first break. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly Spoken. But he said, Yea, rather blessed are they that hear the word of God and keep it. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. Hang tight. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly. Welcome back, everyone. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Willie Grills here with Adam Kuntz talking Chrysostom on Lazarus and the rich man. So a good discussion in the first segment. Now we're going to dig a little bit more into another one of the sermons. And really this segment, we're going to focus on the third sermon of the book, which has no title. It is simply third sermon on Lazarus and the rich man, If for those <laughs> of you keeping up. Right. So Adam, take it away. Well, Chrysostom starts out with a couple of principles that are probably helpful to understand for preaching, but just generally for church life. And that is that the reason he's taking his time on a single parable, because the first five or six sermons in this series of seven were preached within months of each other. So you're talking consecutive Sundays, but also a couple midweek feast days on which he can expect attendance. And he's saying, I'm taking this little by little because you can't handle it. And he uses an image that in here in a positive sense that he uses in a negative sense in another sermon, which is when too much is given, then too much comes out. So negatively, he uses this horrible image about <laughs> vices spilling over. And it's like someone who has a nose problem and is blowing his nose on his shirt all the time. Here, he says, I can't feed you too much because you're going to be like a little kid that throws up if I give him too much. So I have to give you little by little by little like a good mother. <laughs> it's kind of, I mean, it's kind of, it's kind of weird, but memorable. So it might just be weird to me. I'm sure it was memorable to them at the very least. There you go. Yeah. And that, and, and that, that, yeah, go ahead. No, I was just going to ask if you have to deal with anybody in your line of work, wiping their nose on their shirt sleeves um, very often. <laughs> no, but, not, 
not in front of me, not in my classes uh, that I have seen. Well, I think uh, since the <laughs> the mask mandate, it uh, it just kind of pools up in there. <laughs> I don't know. Um, many of them listen, so maybe they'll let me know what they're up to uh, after they hear this. <laughs> Always carry a clean handkerchief, boys. That's I'm just right. saying. Yeah, it's uh, awesome. Pro, pro tip. Yeah, you need it. And there's nothing worse than... Also, if you see your brother in need of one, let him know. Let him know what he needs. <laughs> so that he's not tempted to run away and just hastily wipe his nose on his Thrivent sweatshirt or something. Right. Precisely. Precisely. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, you know, see, after, we, uh, yeah, we just, no, we ahead. just, we just went there too with Chris's system, right? We, That's right. That's it it feels did. like, it's like a Ren and Stimpy episode all of a sudden. <laughs> so, I mean, another, you know, something that maybe is not a parallel with 1990s Nickelodeon is <laughs> implying <laughs> everything isn't, but go on. <laughs> he is, is Chris system's exhortation to them to read scripture. I mean, it sounds, it sounds positively Protestant when he's telling them, you know, you know, I'm going to preach on this. So I want you to read all of this at home beforehand so you can understand the scriptures better. And it, it is something to reflect upon how, how little Bible knowledge there often is, you know, half a millennium after we could almost all of us very easily possess and use a Bible. Right. And, and he goes into, you know, he, he has what he, he loves to do cascades of rhetorical questions. And he does one of those considering some taking up the voice of someone who's saying, I don't have time. I, Oh, I have a wife. I have kids. I have business. I have this. I have to worry about that. I have to be at my place of business, all this sort of thing. And he cascades these objections and then shuts them all down very quickly. Yeah. And says, you need to read the Bible. If you were a monk and you were far away from all these temptations, then fine. You don't need to read the scriptures. But since you are often wounded by the world, you have to take the medicine. So mm -hmm. you need to read the scriptures daily. And so this kind of flies in the face of this meme that all of the ancients were just illiterate and nobody had access to the scriptures until we forget that the wealthy uh, and the educated truly did have access to yeah. Yeah. to the scriptures. It was a problem for the poor and the common person, and especially in the West as as um you know Latin you know comes to dominate and certain people don't, but even that point to that point, the wealthy and the educated would have had more than sufficient Latin to to right. read. Right, right. And right. so and so the, the major point of if you have access to this, you ought to be using it. Yes. Uh, still stands today. Right. Yeah. I mean really no question. And also the the insight that the reason that you have certain daily habits as a Christian is not just because you should, but also because you will suffer horribly otherwise if you don't. These are guards, these are defenses, these are these are ointments that heal because of the number of temptations and difficulties and afflictions in your life. So uh, it's it's a very it's a very interesting point because Chrysostom is someone who pursued a life of solitary asceticism before this time. And so he knows whereof he speaks. It's he, he portrays the life of a monk as a life of retreat. Mm -hmm. And he says, look, you're not, you have not retreated. You are in the midst of all these things. 
you are consorting with pagans and Jews. Antioch is a very <laughs> diverse place. Multi-ethnic. Multi-ethnic. If you will. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a happy multicultural society. Everybody's getting along, but you know, so you have, you have also theological problems and theological questions and something he doesn't mention. You also have what we might call denominations with which he is competing. And so the people cannot simply forego knowledge or forego scripture reading because eventually, you know, they'll come to church and he'll just explain it to them. <laughs> right. Right. And, and, and again, we are, you know, it should not surprise us that some of these problems that Chrysostom is preaching against are, are common today. Right. Right. And really no different. I mean, you're living in a, it's a pluralistic society. People are being pulled one way or the other. Um, by this point in the church, you have people who are generational Christians right. once again. Yeah. And so it's a different church from what you find in Acts as far as the makeup goes as far as the tenure, we'll say the blood tenure of certain families and things like that. So yeah, amazing how, how apt uh, it is. So he wants them to read scripture beforehand. And how does he tie this in with Abraham and Lazarus then? And what is due to a rich man? Or right. What is due to, due to Lazarus rather? Right. Because the third sermon we said before that he focuses on different things and sometimes those different things are really relatively small grammatical details. So in the third sermon, he's hanging everything on the saying of Abraham that the, that the rich man has received what was his due. This is, this is interesting that Chrysostom is very self-aware that when you're talking about what appear to be small things, uh, a certain prepositional phrase, people will say, it's kind of weird that you're building a whole sermon off that. So what he does to support that point is to say that this means that any good thing that he received in, that the rich man received in this life is, is due to certain good things that this man who appears to generally have been hard hearted and, and, and very unusually unfeeling when, when seeing human suffering, this man did do good things in some measure. Likewise, in receiving his due in this life, Lazarus did certain evil things. Yeah. It's a very interesting thing because you, you never hear this a lot. And we do assume, and I think it's, and I think it's true. I mean, wealth, even in those days was passed down a lot like today where it's not, you're not necessarily rich because you worked hard for it. You can become rich and usually become rich through inheritance. Mm -hmm. But Christensen doesn't seem to think that's the case here with Abraham. And and then what do you make of poor Lazarus here? And so this idea of, you know, you know, what's bad is that if people heard this today, they would say that he's describing karma. Right. And and that's not the case. What do you make of the idea? Do do you think that, uh, that people receive temporal dues sometimes in this life from God and temporal uh, punishments? Yeah, I think that what you have to look at is, is, the, is, the, is the way that Proverbs positions a lot of these things and talking about, for instance, the reward of the diligent versus the punishment of the lazy. And I think a lot of times Lutherans are prone to overreact to these things and say, 
Nothing is mm-hmm. due to your merits. Nothing is a reward. You know, nothing has anything right. to do with your action. And that's also unbiblical. The issue is that the things that are said in Proverbs about diligence or the acquisition of wealth or provision for the future or things like that are general principles. The Bible is not maintaining, certainly the book of Job is not maintaining that everything will always go well if you do that. But they are general principles for how life works. Yeah. And, and, and thus, we should expect them to work that way most of the time, and most of the time they do. Yeah. I mean, the admonition here is going to be then that we can't let that make us become haughty. That right. just because you're rewarded for something doesn't mean you're necessarily entitled to it um, or that you should hoard it and right. become greedy because of that. Yeah. Well, I've earned this. It's mine. I mean, gentlemen, it's it's just their audience. It's hard to reconcile Ayn Rand with the Bible. Yeah, right. And and I, I think that that is also something to recognize is that riches are another case of to whom much is given, much is also required. That that the whether you whether you are self-made or whether you inherited wealth or some combination of the two whatever for Chrysostom the spiritual issue of riches for the rich man in this parable is that it gives him a very false sense of the brevity of life and the seriousness of what comes after the continual provision of goodness in this life continual relaxation and comfort and creaturely contentment is, I, I don't even want to use the word contentment. That's kind of a godlier word, but, but creaturely satisfaction yeah. is bad for the soul because it doesn't fit you for what is much more real than the brief moment that this life lasts. Right. When one becomes just merely obsessed with, it's not only the accumulation of things, right? although that is a problem, I mean, you know, the parable of the rich fool and all, but it becomes the obsession over such things. So it doesn't necessarily have to be hoarding monetary things or hoarding grain or even hoarding possessions. Right. But we can we can also be guilty of I don't want, I don't know how to put this, but being selfish with our minds, being foolish with our minds, as it were, mm-hmm. so that we devote our time to silly things and our devotion to silly things and to memorizing, uh, you know, what do we want to say? Strange mythologies and yeah. Marvel and, comic and, universe. Yeah. Yeah. There we go. Well, I was tiptoeing yeah. around that. Um, uh, as a man, as a, yeah. Well, cause I will eventually do an episode where I name every Godzilla movie or something like that. But, <laughs> but, uh, but that's, uh, that's different. That's different. That's <laughs> right. Exactly. Precisely. He's, he's, he's our mascot at this point. So yeah, pretty much. Well, outside of Zelwyn. Right. But, Right, but you know, but you're right. Yeah, just um, you know these this devotion to these things, and and you really see it today. You mentioned the Marvel thing, but how many how many tweets do you see where people are comparing reality to something they see in uh, in a Marvel movie or in or in Harry Potter? You know, oh, Trump's actually whatever Alan Rickman's name is in those movies, or you know, he's he's actually Hans Gruber. I, I don't remember the whatever that you. Yeah. Anyway, the point is, like, it's not real, folks. Don't don't build your life around something that isn't. But that would be an example of, of poor stewardship, in yeah. a way. Yeah. Nothing yeah. wrong with entertainment here and there, but this kind of slavish devotion to that. It's it's sort of the mental equivalent of of just hoarding silver or hoarding grain or hoarding gold. 
uh, hoarding land or something like that. You know, just just to have it, just to look at it, it, it becomes something something similar. I, I think if we're not careful, and anything can. It's at this point many people are going to raise the objections of, but what about my first article gifts? Mm-hmm. What would Chrysostom say here to that? <laughs> well, both the rich man and Lazarus are extreme examples of something. That is, this rich man is much less troubled than many rich men are by the management of their wealth and the maintenance of their wealth and stuff like that. So you have an extreme example of enjoying earthly benefits and an extreme example of intense earthly sufferings, the like of which almost nobody knows, combining both extreme poverty with extreme illness. And the uses of both of those things, whether you are chronically ill in the one case or whether you have wealth in another case, and that's usually the burden of each of the sermons is about the wealthy for reasons we discussed, is that these are supposed to make you consider what to do rather than than trying to seek some justification for what you already do. And <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. I, and I think that it, it's, it's really kind of a strange impulse in Lutherans to seek justification for things they're already doing. That is not justification by faith. I, 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 I mean, I don't, I honestly <laughs> right. don't quite understand. I mean, justification by faith should free you up to do anything because you're not setting any store in anything besides Christ. Right, but 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 the admonition and the exhortation to love one's neighbor doesn't always um, accord with that, because it ends up being well, it's borderline prosperity gospel for some people, and we feel, we hear this even from good confessional minds who would say things like, "Well, I've got a jet ski, so obviously the Lord loves me, right? He's 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 rewarded me with this." Well, that's true, but you also financed it at twenty nine point nine nine percent too. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, I mean, like, I mean, like, since when is the Lord yourself making consumer decisions? Like, I don't, you know what I mean? Like, I, I, I get what yeah. they're saying, and there's a certain piety exactly. there, but you're making well, yeah. consumer decisions. Yeah, and, and and there is a certain piety there. That's fair. Yeah, yeah. but but it, it rarely translates into. I mean, we'll we'll give lip service to. I am free to do this, right? But, but you're all free to open up a soup kitchen, but nobody does it. <laughs> but you're but you're free to enjoy the nice whiskey, but and everybody does that, right? Right. Again, right. nothing wrong with either of those two things in their proper sphere, but too often we see it translated by confessional Lutherans under this umbrella of first article gifts. And well, when I sit, me and Melanchthon sit, and we drink Wittenberg beer, and and the world spread. You know, and they, that's the, one of the quotes they want to throw out. Like that's <laughs> not that the point of that is to say the word works, not to say that you can just sit back and and drink and, and guzzle beer. Uh, and, and just, and expect, snuzzle, just snuzzle it up. Yeah, right. Right. You know, yeah, you got one of the foam helmets on and you got two cans <laughs> going. Uh, that's not the point of that, that you can just be a drunk and not do anything. It's obviously um, a Packers helmet that you're wearing. So. That's right. Yeah. Uh, you know, with your Packers chasuble uh, underneath right. there. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So that, that's not the point of this, but we've all heard these sorts of things and they become memes unto themselves. And the problem is they, they come to be seen as rather pious statements when they're not, there's a good point perhaps to be made behind some of this stuff, as you rightly point out, but far too often it it is used as, um, as just merely an excuse to just do what we want. And I would, I would much rather have someone just say, I'm drinking beer because I like it. I'm eating this good cheese because I like it. 
I'm eating this good steak because I like it. And thanks be to God through him, I'm able to have it. Okay. So God does give good gifts and not turn it into something like, well, I'm actually loving my neighbor by drinking the beer because he could be a Baptist. And now I can show him a true way or to pretend that the love of neighbor and love of the poor is simply teaching them. I don't know the the first chief part of the catechism or something like that. You know, well, I'm, I'm teaching right doctrine. I'm making the good confession with what I'm doing here by being a glutton and a wine bibber. So, so that, so, the, so they know that, that I'm not a pietist and they won't be pietists. See, that's not the same thing we're talking about here. Their first article gifts, if we are to keep using that term, become abused. And again, just becomes reg, you know, borderline. It's like a, it's like a low Midwest Lutheran version of the prosperity gospel in a way. If we're not careful, I, I I think I think the problem that it's doing is that it's not considering the existence of Lazarus, whereas the Lord sets them in contrast to each other with the rich man having a surfeit. They could obviously some of it could be given to help Lazarus. Sure. You know, yeah. you know what I mean? Like and so to consider the gifts that you have apart from the people you're supposed to be serving with those gifts is already a problem. Yeah, well, and, and apart from just merely your own personal enjoyment and gratification, right. is the idea, and and at least at least for us is is to say that yeah, consider consider Lazarus or consider your neighbor, and and what how we're really supposed to use those gifts that we're given. Right, right. Well, all right, we're coming up on the end of the the second segment. We'll be right back with more word fitly spoken right after this. Every word of God is pure. He is a shield unto them that put their trust in Him. The mission of Word Fitly Spoken is to put the Word of God at the center of all of life. To find out more, check us out at wordfitlyspoken.org. Welcome back, everyone. This is A Word Fitly Spoken. I am Willie Grills here with Adam Kuntz to talk about St. John Chrysostom on wealth and poverty. Well, a fun couple of segments there. We're going to wrap up our discussion now uh, with some very important themes and some things that are really going to, to stick out to us, I think. Adam? Yeah. Yeah. So by the time he is done with this series, by the seventh sermon, which is probably about a year after the first sermon on the topic, He's actually ostensibly reading a different scripture text. Jesus's warning about the width of the way that leads to perdition and the narrowness of the way that leads to life. Within that scripture text, he's going to insert his final interpretation of the rich man and Lazarus. Nice. So, it, yeah, right. And it, it because, so one of the things that you see in the in the in the final sermon especially of the series is how he relates scripture to itself and how he really is 
almost incapable of preaching a sermon that I've ever read by him without doing two things. One is drawing a very vivid picture of some Bible story or another. The other is quoting Paul as his ultimate basis for his exhortations. He does that everywhere, which I'm completely, I'm completely fine personally with both those things. But it's interesting to notice that even when he should be preaching on this other text from Matthew, he just does another rich man and Lazarus sermon. So mm-hmm. with the rich man figured this time, not just as a certain way of life in which riches are their own sort of problem and should be given to the poor, etc., but as a way of life that has a certain destination. So this is the sermon where he's going to focus the most on the outcome of one's way of life. And that's why he begins with what is definitely his most emotionally intense couple of pages in this edition, where he's basically just screaming at people. It sounds like, I don't know, maybe that's an exaggeration, (laughs) (laughs) but he's basically screaming at them for going to chariot races, which sounds silly when you say it, but he has all of these associated spiritual dangers to being there so it always sounds silly because it's chariots right but if he said but if he said you're if he said you're going to the track or going to the stadium you know maybe it'd be a little bit different right i mean i i think i think that part of the issue here is that we are assigning usually less value to having a wider array of things you can do with your life than he ever did. So part of his issue with going to chariot races is that, and and, and again, this sounds strange. I just think it's because we don't really think about it theologically. The idea that you would go somewhere in public and you would just be like screaming about something that really, that really everyone admits doesn't matter. and And is in some sense, just an occasion for drinking a lot and gambling. Well, I'm certainly glad we don't have that today. Right. We don't have that. Right. So we've done well. The, I, Society has progressed. Right. Totally. I'm I'm trying to avoid the word chariot to keep the analogy running in people's heads because <laughs> I think the, the issue here is that the, the concept of something being a waste of time is not just sort of a, a, a statement about like like Taylorism style efficiency. It's about you're given a certain amount of time, you're given a certain amount of energy, you're given a certain amount of money, whatever in life. What are you going to do with that? You're doing it, you're going to go out in public, you're probably going to get drunk, and you're going to be screaming like a madman. And for him, this is both like a perversion of what a human being is supposed to be. And it also shows to the pagans and Jews and the other people from Antioch in the crowd, hey, the Christians aren't really different from anybody. That. They're the same sure. as we are. Well, and I want to, you know, this is an interesting, it's interesting that he uses chariot racing. I mean, and, and who knows in Antioch, you know, what their what their track looked like. I mean, it's not exactly the Circus Maximus or anything, but chariot racing is dangerous. Yeah, right. It's a, it, it's an extreme sport, but it's not the, it's less violent than the gladiatorial games that other patristic sermons will be uh, preached against. Right. Now, that's very interesting to me. And what I'm about to say is in no way meant to disparage NASCAR, the official sport of Word Fitly Spoken. Um, <laughs> this is a Dale Earnhardt podcast, a fan it, cast, okay? It, it will forever be. Yeah, right. <laughs> and uh, so it's interesting. So you can't just take it like 
you can't go, well, it's like the gladiatorial games where there was death and, and violence. So that was the order of the day. And that's what they're preaching against. Because you could just as easily take that and go to UFC or whatever. But that's not the point here. He's using chariot races. While, yes, dangerous, that's not really the object of the sport. It's the idleness of it right. that troubles exactly. him. Right. And the fanaticism, too. Right. Yeah. 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 He's, not, he's not giving detailed descriptions of, you know, 17% of charioteers are... <coughs> <laughs> or injured every year. Right, exactly. Yeah, it's it's not a discussion about charioteers. It's a discussion about what happens to people who are deeply invested in these things. And so the idea that the Christians would participate in that along with everyone else is, is unthinkable to him. So he leads off with that and realizes that he's gotten pretty hot because this is the only example throughout the, the seven sermons where he will step back for just a second and say, you know, you, you think again, second person discourse. And I don't even, I don't know. I mean, I, okay. I'm not going to be falsely humble. I, I, I admit that I could probably do that in second person and say what he said, but it f- would feel a little weird, but he steps back for a second. And he says, you think that I am too severe but this is the severity of a father, you know, and then he goes on. Right. So um, the, the, it's interesting here that even he recognizes at some point that his emotions are maybe even too hot for the congregation. And I screaming was, was the wrong idea, but it is definitely intense. It's also a way that you can tell he is delivering this, from his it's flowing out of him he's not delivering this as a prepared thing we're getting this as a transcript and he is delivering this i mean you cannot convey emotion like that with that kind of fluency with some sort of prepared script that you're reading from or taking cues from you can tell that he is delivering himself and the message that is you know weighing on him and the man has skin in the game. I mean, there's something to be he said does. about that yeah. kind of zeal yeah. and that kind yeah. of passion. Yeah. Preaching can never be merely a disconnected doctrinal discourse. Disputations are for that, I suppose. Symposia papers and other papers presentations are are that. <laughs> but a ser- but a sermon is alive and it ought to be. Yeah. And it needs to be lively and it ne- but it needs to be authentically lively. You know, no carnival barking or anything like that. No, no tent revival kind of stuff that we've discussed in early episodes, but but it's okay for true biblical preaching to have passion behind it, to have zeal. You just have to be wise in how you use it. Yeah, and and I think that it it is it is pertinent to what he's preaching on because especially in the last sermon, he is trying to give his hearers a very different sense of what is happening in this life right now taking these two men as extreme examples so that their life in the hereafter would not be one where, you know, the worm is consuming them forever and the fire cannot be quenched. So the, the passion is born out of a sense of the weightiness of the things he's talking about. It's not just him being, you know, so to speak, grumpy or something silly like that. (laughs) Right, right, right. In addition to that, there is something I think for every preacher to consider, which is no matter your fluency, no matter your passion, 
Even John Chrysostom complains in the seventh sermon about how he preaches and people nod along and they say, yeah, that's great. And then they walk out of the church and they forget what they heard. It has no bearing on what they're going to do with their time or their money or anything else when they leave the church doors. And he complains about how much they forget. Right. And uh, (laughs) so don't feel bad. You're in good company, right? Right, right. Exactly. And this goes, and this goes against uh, a little bit of what we always say. We've been uh, talking about this a lot. Uh, We have certain knowledge, a certain knowledge of the ancient world, but we magnify it too much. Right. And this is another one. Well, the ancient world, they just had perfect memories. So they remembered everything. Right. No, they, now we do have shorter attention spans today, but ancient people could be, could be just as guilty of daydreaming or not listening or, or let uh, things go <laughs> right. from one ear to out the other. Right. You know, they, they weren't like dictaphones or something like that. No, no. So, so this is not a, not a new problem. And, it goes back to his point, though, that why are they distracted? Why aren't they listening? Well, they're thinking about the chariot race. They're thinking about their business affairs, the business they have to get to that day. And that's just for the ones who are showing up. The other ones that right. he preaches about are the ones who, because of that, don't show up. Right. And I think that that's not only the second person direct address that we talked about before, but his way of moving the sermon along by asking a series of questions framed as if they're being spoken by the hearer helps to hold the hearer's attention because he'll say, you would say to me, and then there's like five sentences of objections to the idea that riches are actually a spiritual burden and we should not count the man fortunate who has them in this life. Right. And, and and that's going to get the hearer more on his side than if he calmly says, well, look at this example and look at that example. The reason he can do seven sermons on the same text is because he's not giving exhaustive biblical references for everything. He's spelling out, usually in series of questions, objections to his teaching with brief, clear statements of that teaching in each sermon. All right. Where are we going next? I think probably one of the last couple of things that we want to talk about is the way that he wants to give people a completely different sense of what is happening in this life, right? So this is this is just from a rhetorical perspective hard to do because you have to work against people's natural sense of what is good and what is bad. So you hear the story of rich man and Lazarus. You say, one is very fortunate in this life. One is very unfortunate in this life. What Chrysostom wants to do is actually read what is good about this life back from the final destinies of each man. Mm. So he doesn't want to say that, yeah, chronic sufferings and poverty and being completely isolated in the world is good. He's not He's not trying to say, yes, be as desperately poor as you possibly can. Poverty is its own reward. Right, yeah. This, this will definitely, yeah, poverty will definitely lead to X reward. Right. It's not a, it is not a, you know, Gustavo Gutierrez preferential option for the poor. Poverty is just great on its own. That's not what he's saying. But what he is saying is, which is the ultimate coat posting, by the way. It really, it really is. It really is. What he is saying about Lazarus specifically, for example, is that Lazarus is given ample opportunity through suffering 
to learn what the true value of this brief life is and what greater things he should hope for. So spiritually, Lazarus's life is much more wholesome, even though materially it's much more miserable. Now that yeah. that 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 is totally counterintuitive, but it's how in many of the sermons Chrysostom is trying to teach his congregation to think about what he describes as punishments or afflictions. That is, if something bad happens to me, I need to learn to use it rather than simply being angry that it's happening to me. Yeah. So I that this will teach me to worship. This will teach me to pray. This will teach me to praise rather than just grumbling that bad things are happening to me as if life could constantly be one. Of, he says the life of the blessed is never one of constant relaxation. Right. And you have to look at that as God's design and providence to right. Right. Uh, bring, bringing us closer to him, teaching us to, to rely on him. Right. Often with the Christian, or it, and it's just human nature, one of the first reactions we have when something goes bad is, it's not to curse out and lash out at God. I think that we make too much of that. Mm-hmm. You know, well, mm-hmm. I'm Job, so I'm going to say this. Well, you're not Job, and so just calm down a bit. <laughs> But it, but it's just it's just sort of be, to bemoan our station, right? And you don't even have to assign blame to anyone either. It can just be miserable in your condition, and that's all you focus on is the misery of it in and of itself, right? So, so, so here I am, right? You don't even ask why, because sometimes if you ask why, you might learn that maybe it's your fault. <laughs> but, <laughs> but we never ask that. We just right. simply become angry over it and right. stew over it and ponder it, and, and it eats us up inside. Right. Instead to say, okay, some calamity has befallen me. What spiritual benefit could there possibly be to this? Right. And right. It's a it's a it's a hard lesson to learn, but probably a necessary lesson for us. Right. On the flip side, can we ever ask the same question of, okay, the good I have, how can I grow closer to God? Or yeah. or or what what can God teach me through this? Right. Yeah, I mean, you can and and you should ask that question. I think that the burden of Chrysostom's preaching on the rich man is to get his listeners who largely share the something more like the rich man's condition yes. than Lazarus's to consider all of the evil that could possibly be part of their life as comfortable, wealthy people. And especially in the seventh sermon, that is why he's going to link the rich man's station in Luke's gospel to Jesus's description of the broad way in Matthew's gospel, because in both cases, he sees the problem of abundance, that abundance is its own problem because it warps the spirit and it gives Mm -hmm. a, it, it lulls where you should be woken up. Yeah. It's, it's, it's akin to drunkenness or gluttony. Right. Yeah, and look, I mean, it's hard to be wealthy. I mean, the the scripture does say it's not easy for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Look, folks, you can't all be Mike Lindell. I mean, I mean, I love yeah. that fellow's pillows. Love He's that guy. Great, yes. great guy, friend of the show. <laughs> yeah, it becomes, uh, and we forget though, for all of our talk about justification, which is good, and we should be, we forget that that can be snatched away from us when we grow complacent, when we become like the rich man and, and forget. Oh, you yeah. do it if you're poor too. 
Yeah, I I think what's interesting something that really is does not tie the sermons together at all, and it's sort of like a you know maybe I would have gone about this differently, maybe I wouldn't. Is that Chrysostom jumps into and then when he briefly emerges from, jumps right back into exhortation. He's a very hortatory preacher. He's very interested in finding sure. the closest application and hammering it home. And so he's not going to stop a lot and say, okay, here's my framework for how salvation occurs. Here's <laughs> right. how penance occurs. He's not really explaining. Uh, yeah. The framework is just kind of like, like all around the hearer rhetorically. And so by the end of the sermon, you have like no other option other than whatever he exhorted you to do. That's kind of it. There's nothing else, sure. you know? Well, they're also sitting through a lot of liturgy that day too. Sure. I mean, yeah, I don't think they heard nothing doctrinal, but he's a very, and I don't, this is not that unusual from my reading of him. He's not a, he's not a doctrinally heavy preacher. He's a He's an application heavy preacher, let's say. Yeah, it's eminently practical. We'll say. Yeah. Yeah. If you want if you want to go that route. In a good way. Not in the <laughs> not in the modern sense. Okay. <laughs> Whatever that means. Like he's not He's not giving you tips for a better marriage. Well, he, actually he does that. And, yeah, but, yeah. But, in a good, but in a good way. But in a good way. Yeah. Right. Don't tell your wife too often that she's beautiful. That's one of his tips. So <laughs> Right. Write write it down. <laughs> Which is from that episode, that's like that's a detail that numerous people have talked to me about. I thought right. that was really weird when you guys talked about. You know, it's like, yeah, well, it, it is a little weird, but that's one of his but tips. He, so, hey, look, if you, you're <laughs> still the golden throat, take it, take it for what you want. You know. <laughs> well, all right, just a, a few seconds here. Um, yeah. Anything else you'd like to say as we as we wrap up this episode? Just something to notice is that although the sermons are on the same topic and there is a repetition of, let's say theme and to some extent of application, the endings are all almost identical. There's always a Trinitarian praise at the end of the sermon. And it's always forward looking, really ultimate looking when he talks about attaining blessedness through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, who with the father and the spirit, et cetera, and he ends pretty much all his sermons the same way. The the listener, not to speak of the reader, would really have a very clear idea. This is ending, and without you know some sort of clumsy in conclusion. Although he does do that in the last sermon, which is sort of a. I mean, nobody bats a thousand. He goes so that the sermon may not have too great a length. It's like. All right. You know, so he, he's kind of tired. He's done for the day. You know, it's time for Sunday lunch. So, you know, nobody bats a thousand. But that that little note of sort of human clumsiness, I thought was interesting in the last sermon. Well, yeah. you know, he, he is human after all. He is human. Golden you mouth, know, still human. Well, and that's something to remember about the church fathers is they're actually flesh and blood men uh, who who lived who lived actual lives and things like that. And sometimes we go back and we're, and we're reading the great preachers and we're hoping for perfect syntax. And mm-hmm. if you're looking for that, I don't read the new Testament and right, parts, right. You know, and things like don't that. Don't Yeah. Right. Yeah, definitely. Right. And so we forget that they are, that they are men and that they are preaching to men and that it's, it's being human in a very good way. It's, right. it's very beneficial to go back and read this, you know, 
little things like that make a difference and not just the fact that his themes and his preaching can carry over to today but just seeing what kind of a man that he was right and in, and in his own words and it, using his own techniques not just through a a, bi- a biography or something like that precisely well all right well that's going to do it adam thank you so much my pleasure thank you well this has been a word fitly spoken if you like what you heard and want to know more check us out wordfitlyspoken.org facebook.com slash wordfitly or twitter at wordfitly i'm willie grills here with adam Kuntz. god love you and god bless But lest we stretch out the sermon to, do, to a great length, it is enough to stop our teaching at this point and to entreat your love not to pursue the wide gate or the easy road, nor always to seek comfort, but bearing in mind the end of each way to flee the easy way, considering what befell this rich man and to pursue the narrow gate and the way of tribulation, so that after tribulation here, we may be able to reach the place of comfort. Flee, therefore, I beg of you, the spectacles of Satan and the harmful sights of the race course. For the sake of those who have been enticed away and have walked towards the easy road, I have been led to say these things in order that they may learn to leave that road. And by traveling on the way of tribulation, I mean the way of virtue, they may be counted worthy of the patriarch's bosom like Lazarus. And in order that all of us together, freed from the fire of hell, may enjoy those ineffable good things which eye has not seen nor ear heard.